We got trouble coming. Hearts in the uh, waiting room. Yeah. yeah. I know you can handle them. <laughs> Whole Rich thing. McAduck. Hey, man. How the hell are you? I'm as good looking as ever. Does that help? Wow. <laughs> well, listen, this is AMR. We got to be serious and we got to be respectable, man. So keep the. So what are you doing? What, what, what are you doing this for? You got to keep the profanity to a minimum, man. No more than one F bomb per minute. OK, my my co-authors, Rich, are, are very stand up kind of people on this project. They are, I know they are serious. They are. How did they get mixed up with you? How did they get mixed up with me? Yeah. I, I lied and cheated. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Drinking a cappuccino there, Art. Yeah. You I got to keep up. I got to keep up with Rich's energy. <laughs> I got my tea right here. What the hell is that? What is on the mug? It's uh, the artist calls it a dragon mug. Yeah. So it's got claws and stuff. It's got claws on the back too. Oh, that's that's really good. Yeah, it's it's nice. It intimidates the students, you know. Yeah, like there the, we go. The, John like, like 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 without with without your mug, they would they wouldn't be scared of you at all, Rich. Yeah, right, exactly. Well, I've got this on my desk too. You know. What does it say? <laughs> Heart, what can I say? Not all of us have your charm, and, and that's good, a good thing. And good looks. That's a, that's a that is a good thing. Good. Okay. Are we done insulting each other? Well, Ming hasn't insulted anyone yet, but you know, if we if we can get her finished, then we're good. Uh, she's got to get tenure first, right? Then she can. Got to get a job. She's got to get a job first. She's a big <laughs> student. What year are you? Fourth year now. Yep. <laughs> Once you've got tenure, you can feel free to insult anybody, right? <laughs> good. Okay. Well, let's get started, guys. This has been this is already hilarious. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Academy Management Review Origin Series. My name is Rich McAdock. I am your host and I am an associate editor for AMR and also a professor of management at Purdue University's Cranard School of Management. Uh, today, my guests uh, for this episode are John Chen, Dan Elfenbein, Hart Posen, and Mingzhu Wang, uh, who are together the co-authors of a forthcoming AMR article called the Problems and Promise of Entrepreneurial Partnerships, colon, Decision-Making, Overconfidence, and Learning in Founding Teams. So welcome to all of you. This is the largest group of authors I've, I've yet had on the series. I've got all four authors on the call at the same time. Thank you and welcome. Thanks for having us. Good to see you, Rich. Likewise. Good. So why don't we start off and just ha have uh, one of you guys give the brief one-minute elevator pitch explanation for the paper. What is the paper about in kind of short form? 
Rich, I'll take that. Um, this paper is about entrepreneurial teams. So we know that a lot of new ventures are started by entrepreneurial teams. In fact, I was an entrepreneur for a dozen years before going back to grad school in middle age. And, and you know, as a consequence of there being, you know, it, that it's self-evident that many ventures are started by teams. There's been lots of research over the years on, on this question research on things like founding team formation, the knowledge experience uh, and relational resources of founding team members, goal setting, demographic diversity, affect, all kinds of research. And there have been a number of um, uh, review papers lately. But you know, it seemed to us that there was just one question that hadn't been addressed. And it seems to be a centrally important question, this question of how should decision-making be organized in these teams? What should the structure of decision-making be? When you have two or more people as founders of a firm, right? you automatically need some decision-making structure to aggregate their beliefs about what to do and to turn it into an organizational action. And in fact, uh, it, it, you know, to our knowledge, there's really no, not any substantial body of work that has addressed this question. And so that was our goal, to try and think about the, the mechanisms that determine how decision-making should be organized. Should, there be, should it be a partnership? Rich and I decide together and we both have to agree. Should I be the boss and Rich be the employee? I make all of the decisions. Or some intermediate form. There's Hart and Rich and initially, we're equal partners, we both have to agree, but then with the option for one partner to buy out the other. And so that's what we set out to do in this paper. And I'll give you a little bit, we'll talk about other things, I'll give you a little bit of the, the key takeaway. It is that the decision-making structure should follow from the nature of entrepreneurial biases. So bias determines structure. And we'll talk a little you know, later, hopefully, about some of the nuances there. Yeah, I did notice that in the paper, there were a lot of nuances in a lot of contingency factors that were um, influencing these, um, these decisions in the, uh, in, about, uh, about uh, decision structures in the model, in the, in the simulation model. Um, do you want to take a, just a, maybe a brief moment and talk about some of those contingency factors that, that may have been maybe at play? Yeah, so we, we think about, uh, you know, a, a couple of them. Uh, the most salient is the, nature, uh, is the nature of bias. If there's one topic in entrepreneurship that's been hot over the last few years, it's this question of an entre entrepreneurial biases. Are entrepreneurs biased? And if so, uh, how are they biased? And potentially, what are the implications of this bias? And so for us, that's the main contingency. And we think of, in fact, two types of confidence biases. This comes out of work by Moore and Healy in, two, in mid 2000s. Uh, we think about estimation bias. Are your beliefs above or below the tr true reality? And we think of uh, precision biases. How, how strongly do you hold that belief to the mean? How easily are you swayed from it? And right. so those are, the, those are the main contingencies we look at. And then right. just to, to highlight a couple of the interesting outcomes, we find that partnerships actually perform really well when you have two agents that start off a little bit over-optimistic. Uh, in fact, that, that structure of needing both to agree 
to launch a project is, is pretty good as a remedy for mild overconfidence. Mm. Um, and, and similarly, we find that a contingent structure works best when you don't know in the population, you maybe have a population of, of biased people, but you don't know exactly what the biases are. And you have uh, some people who could be at the, at the tails in terms of optimism or precision biases, then having a contingent structure uh, gives you the ability to, to fix one of those problems that comes from having a, a biased uh, teammate. Right, so, you know, so obviously there has been a lot of research on overconfidence bias in among entrepreneurs. Is the, uh, and, and you're distinguishing between, um, you know, bias in their belief about the potential future success versus bias in the, their belief about the accuracy of their beliefs. Um, I'm not quite sure what my question is here, but just, uh, uh, is the is this a is this a contribution of the paper to really distinguish between those two forms of biases? Has the the literature adequately taken into account that there are really two perhaps two forms of bias here? That is not a contribution of this paper per se, because we did this in the 2018 paper in Org Science. We pulled apart these two kinds of biases, and even. There, while we're bringing that into the literature on entrepreneurship, that's that distinction is the work of Moore and Healy, who are making the argument that a lot of the work on confidence bias is not writ large in psychology and elsewhere confounds these two types of confidence biases. Right. And so lots of folks are speaking past each other as a consequence. Right. Well, once you conceptualize entrepreneurship as a process of learning, then you have to think about this issue of overprecision or precision biases, which are how, conf how, how much do you hang on to your, your priors, so to speak. Um, and so uh, this is the second in a, in a series of three papers that distinguishes between these two types of bias. And it's stuff that, that Hart and John use in, in other work uh, as well. Great, great. Well, tell us a little bit about, you know, who, who should read this paper? What's the target audience or audiences? Yeah, so I'll take this one, Rich. Um, so we have a couple of different target audiences for this paper. Um, first, uh, we are really speaking to this audience who does work on teams and team formation in entrepreneurship. Um, and in particular, the impact uh, of team formation on performance. Um, more broadly, we're speaking to the communities that really care about improving our understanding of entrepreneurship teams in general. Um, this was really important to us because, like Hart mentioned earlier, if we just look at some of the most successful entrepreneurial ventures, you know, Apple, Microsoft, right, they didn't come from a solo entrepreneur, they spawned from a team of entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. um, so another audience that we're speaking to is uh, those who do work on debiasing. So, you know, these are scholars who are thinking about uh, the types of policies that might help with mitigating costs of bias in decision making. And we really want this paper to be a part of that conversation too. Um, so on top of these policies like um, screening out the most biased individuals um, or debiasing them via education or you know maybe even carefully structuring their learning process, mm -hmm. um, our paper is saying, okay, maybe we should also think 
um, a bit more carefully about how selecting a decision-making structure um, could help biased individuals make better decisions together as a team. Um, a third audience that we're hoping that this paper speaks to are uh, those who think um, carefully about decision-making errors, in particular in terms of errors of omission and mm -hmm. errors of uh, commission. And finally, we're really hoping that this paper uh, connects with the entrepreneurship community that takes learning very seriously. Um, and not just learning uh, in the post-entry phase, but also learning in the pre-entry phase of uh, the entrepreneurship venturing process. Um, and I, I wanna briefly mention that this paper is a part two in a trilogy. Mm -hmm. right. um, and I think Dan is going to expand a little bit more on this trilogy um, later. Um, but for now, I'm, uh, I'm gonna pass it back over to you. Thanks. So I like the, the, the aspect that you mentioned about uh, debiasing, the debiasing literature. Um, because, uh, you know, in effect, you're taking a different approach. You're saying rather than trying to remove the biases from the decision maker, let's, you know, exploit and harness that bias in some sense uh, by, you know, shaping the decision making process so that it, it makes use of the biases. And I, I found that to be an interesting approach. That's yeah, Rich, I, I could even say that, you know, when you have uh, a decision-making structure that's part of the organization, it's, it's almost like, um, you know, unbiased agents are not ideally suited for that. So it, it's almost baked into the, you know, decision-making structure. Right, you know, and it, it, it actually reminds me of... Um, you know, the, and I'll, I'll show my bias here because I'm, I'm, I'm an American, you know, and it reminds me of the way they, they teach us about the, the U.S. Constitution, right? The idea is, you know, we're never going to have, uh, you know, perfectly saintly leaders, right? And so we have a system of, as they call it, checks and balances so that the, the ambitions of one, uh, you know, counterbalance against the ambitions of another. And here it's, it's a little bit different uh, phenomenon because we're talking about biases rather than ambitions. Um, you know, we're never, the idea there was we're never going to have perfectly selfless leaders. Uh, so, you know, we, we exploit the selfishness. Uh, and in, in, in the same sense that you guys are saying, we're never going to have unbiased decision makers. So let's just uh, exploit the, the biases. Uh, so certain similarity there. I like, I like your example, Rich, because that's, you know, your example says we designed the structure of governance in the U.S. to match our understanding of, of human behavior. And yeah, what saying, jerks we are, basically, yeah. <laughs> design the structure of new venture to match what we understand to be the bias of the, of the particular entrepreneurs. So I love your analogy. I think that's super. Good, good. Okay. So, so... Um... You know, this is, of course, you know, we call this the origin series, right? And so we are interested in the origins of the project. And you, you did mention that this was uh, connected to a prior paper in organization science. So maybe tell us a little bit about those origins and where did this, where did this paper come from? Um, so it's a great question. I, I'll, I'll approach this in, in, from two levels. First is just the intellectual history uh, of, of how these ideas got combined. Um, we, we took a, a model from the operations literature, uh, it's a paper called Ryan and Littman, combined it with 
some of the insights from psychology, from Warren Healy that Hart talked about, and with the, the work on learning in entrepreneurship and org theory. And that was what kind of produced our, our single agent model. Um, as we then kind of took that as a fundamental building block, we added uh, insights from Saad Stiglitz in economics, uh, Cesar and Eggers in, in management theory to think about what happens when we kind of take the single agent process into a multi-agent setting and think about errors of, of omission and, and commission. Um, the, the first single agent uh, set of things became the org science paper and obviously the multi-agent uh, question uh, was addressed in, in this paper. Uh, from a practical standpoint, this all originated um, when Hart and I gave back-to-back -back presentations at a conference uh, at Cambridge University on entrepreneurship and innovation. I think it was the Cambridge Judge and Darden UVA uh, Joint Innovation uh, Entrepreneurship Conference. Um, and uh, we kind of, after, after I was sort of talking about uh, trouble that agents had in the laboratory setting of shutting things down and Hart had been talking about uh, challenges of decision-making in, in, the, in the context of um, thinking about real options, we recognized that there was a real opportunity to put these two things together. And also there are a bunch of things that we didn't understand um, uh, exactly how uh, these biases, for example, combined um, to either mitigate one another or to amplify one another. Um, and so that led to a, a partnership um, uh, with, with David Crozen, which, which went on for, for a few months um, with a bunch of interesting ideas, but not a lot of progress. And then Hart had the wisdom to bring John onto that project, uh, after which uh, we were able to kind of settle down on a single idea around modeling and make a, make a, make a, ton, of, uh, a ton of progress there. Um, uh, we then kind of were basking the glow of, of having finished and completed what was a pretty tough first paper um, uh, when Ming came along as a first year PhD student and started reading that paper. And well, we kind of got back into this idea of, well, what are the obvious extensions? One is to take a single agent paper into a multi-agent paper. And she came up with a bunch of great ideas about how to do that. And that sort of spawned, uh, spawned this partnership. That's great. So, so yeah, I think all, a, a lot of great research uh, comes from recombining other pieces of research, right? And that's, that's the story you tell of these, uh, these disparate strands of, uh, of, of, uh, of theory that you combine together first in the first paper and then combined those strands with yet another set of strands in the second paper. How did you come up with the idea to combine those particular strands of theorizing together. How did you know that those would be, uh, you know, good, good recombination? I love, uh, I've been lately been, been sharing with people um, this great YouTube video called Everything is a Remix, uh, which I recommend for you and, and for everybody in the audience, um, you know, because it, it, it emphasizes the, you know, the importance and creativity of uh, of copying and recombination and, uh, and you know, um, it's, it's just really great. And I think it, it has, it's primarily focused on, you know, on music and movies, uh, but I think it has a lot to tell us about research well, um, as well. Like, like but, but tell us a little bit about why, why and how you, you, you managed to pick those particular strands and how you managed to combine them. Well, I'll start, and I'd love to hear what my co-authors have to say about this, but in, in this case, I think you could have 
you bring what you have to the table. Um, and uh, uh, the, you know, my training in economics uh, was one where you think carefully about um, decision rights, cash flow rights, take organizational structure very seriously. I happened to have fallen in love with the Saw and Stiglitz paper when I first saw it in my um, you know, applied micro class years and years and years ago. Um, and so it seemed sort of an obvious way to, to, to begin the, the inquiry. Um, although it turns out that just simply saying hierarchies versus polyarchies isn't, isn't quite enough to make this paper. We had to actually think about how the, the decision-making structure evolved over time, how it allocated cash flow rights and decision rights in, in a way that, that wasn't in that Son Stiglitz work. But um, uh, I, I'm not sure that, I, I think we used the tools that we collectively had, had been uh, thinking about for a long time rather than searching to, to bring new tools in. But I might be wrong about that, Ed. No, I, you know, I fully, I fully agree with you, Dan, but you know, it's not just that we, I, in my view, that we use those tools. You and I talking at a break at that Cambridge conference, we, you came with one set of perspectives. I came with a lot of work on thinking about learning processes in other work I had been and, and, and confidence bias and confidence biases. And in fact, in another paper I have forthcoming in org science, I take Son Stiglitz and add on learning processes. So, you know, it, it, it's not that we, we brought these together, but these were lenses through which we, we looked at a common question. And so they naturally led us in this path, it, you know. It, uh, and we certainly, started off with lots of discussions about one-shot decision-making versus learning. And that was a, a real learning process for me since I was mostly thinking about you know, one-shot or, or stage games, whereas Hart really brought a perspective of continuous learning. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different world. Yeah, I, I would also say that there's, um, there's value in just doing work uh, of any sort and these connections just form over time because I'd come to this with um, a desire to do work in technology platforms and uh, standardization. And so mm -hmm. consensus building is a big part of that. Mm. And that, that's a richer context in some ways. The, the uh, design problem is much more complicated. And I, I, uh, as we were doing this project in the early stages, I'm like, gosh, I don't even really understand how it works among two parties. Mm. So let me figure this out first. Um, and there, there are takeaways also from this project uh, spilling back into the work on platforms. And I don't, it's a little fuzzy yet what that is, but it's sort of interesting, this uh, sort of, like you said, Rich, this recombination and how it temporally recombines in different ways. Yeah, I think that's really helpful for our audience because, you know, the purpose of this series overall is you know, to, to explore the question of where does theory come from? And, uh, you know, what's, what's the process? And to try to demystify the process. I think a lot of uh, younger researchers, you know, look at the idea of, oh, writing an AMR paper and making a contribution to theory and, and you know, get a little puzzled about, well, how do I go about doing that? You know, we have we have methods courses that we teach for statistical analysis, but we don't really have so many methods courses that we teach in terms of uh, making a contribution to theory. Uh, and that's a big part of what this, uh, this uh, series is about. Um, so 
so tell us a little bit about, you know, uh, another aspect of developing a contribution to theory, which is teamwork in this case, because obviously, you know, this was a four person uh, collaboration. Uh, and, you know, perhaps your, your, the theory that you developed in the course of this paper may have helped you to develop your own internal governance for, for, uh, for, uh, for how you operated uh, in terms of uh, uh, making decisions about this paper. Well, tell us a little bit about how the teamwork worked for you guys. Sure. Um, well, we uh, had sort of two um, large tasks with this paper. Quite obviously, there's the writing as you would have in, in any paper, um, but we also have the modeling piece. And mm -hmm. so uh, Dan and Hart um, did most of the work on the writing. Uh, Ian Ming did um, most of the work on the modeling. Uh, part of that <clears throat> was uh, historical too. I had done the modeling on our uh, earlier paper and, um, you know, just a stance to reason that I, I sort of know the guts and, you know, for the sake of time and, and uh, just making everything go smoothly, that's, that's sort of a natural inertia that comes with it. Uh, but it's been a, a really good partnership. Uh, we meet quite fre frequently to uh, build consensus around uh, the things that we're grappling with uh, on issues with the modeling and the writing. Um, I appreciate that um, we have sort of this uh, uh, kind of, you know, sort of spirit of, of um, not letting anyone just say, okay, you go off and do this in a silo and just come back with a picture that I like, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, for, for instance, Dan will often um, scrutinize uh, tables and figures uh, quite in detail. And we, we don't all have, you know, exact same preferences along those lines. Uh, I would say Dan is more of a table guy. Hart is more of a figure guy. But it all, it all works well. Um, and, you know, what I will say, yeah, so we, we have a pretty good uh, working relationship, obviously, as we're, you know, going to discuss in a minute, we haven't stopped with this paper. So, you know, I'll, I'll just add, I'll just add to the, uh, your, your question about where, you know, earlier question of, you know, theory uh, as a development, mm -hmm. uh, you know, John was my student at Michigan many years ago. And in fact, he's my collaborator on many different projects. And over time, you know, you, you, you come up with ideas and you think around to your set of collaborators and they bring different bundles of skills that are needed in different kinds of, of, of projects. And I think that too is an important part of sort of the origin of, of, of theory these days. It's, no, it's very rarely a one person task. It's mostly a team task today. And understanding your collaborators or potential collaborators, what they bring to the table. And in fact, even what theoretical lens they bring to the table. I think is really important. I, I, it might sound like I'm trying to have the last word. This is not my intention here. I want to try to um, add Hart, I'll never let anybody else have the last word. So yeah. don't worry about it. I'm staying quiet, Rich. <laughs> um, so I, I've, I've, I've learned two things um, here that, that, I, that may be of use to the people who are watching. One is how to let go of control um, and with, with really bright collaborators, um, not 
forcing every decision to be the one that I like. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's led to a much better paper than, than one where, you know, you kind of get all in a huff when it goes down a direction that you might not have, have owned or, or suggested. And so that's, that's been one sort of delightful kind of learning from this. And then the second is, I, I, I think this is, I heard this from you, Hart, and I think it's really useful. The, the, the process has often been like, and Carl described it, let's create some variation. So it's not surprisingly, he's a Wharton person. So Nelson and Winter variation selection retention is, is in the back of the mind, but, but often solving a problem that where we get stuck, it's like, well, let's create three options. Let's create some variation. And then we'll decide which of these things to select to, to carry forward. But it requires, when you're creating that variation, knowing that four out of the five ideas you come up with are gonna to be tossed. Mm -hmm. And uh, letting go of that, and, and you know, four of the five figures you create are gonna to be tossed and recognizing that that in order to make a, a really good project, you're you're going to be going down some some directions where the effort might not be seem to be directly rewarded by making it to the final cut. But that process of creating more ideas and continuing to select from them, I, I think, has led to um, productive outcomes. Yeah, it is definitely a a trial and error process in many ways. Uh, it's been my experience in doing theory work. Um, so it sounds like you had a kind of a polyarchy governance structure for this paper. Is, would, your, would your theory predict that that's the optimal governance structure for, for a, a task like this? Depends how biased you think we are, Rich. <laughs> well, you all are, are, are uh, I guess, uh, uh, optimistically biased, right? So then having each other as a check on you, that would be beneficial, right? That's the, what the theory would say. So if you're all... If you're all um, um, uh, over optimistic, then you'll you'll want to have each other as a check. So okay, so what were the biggest? Um, well, let me let me actually before I get to that question. Uh, so you've got this idea of okay, we've got the first paper in org science, fine, and so a single agent model. We'd like to be able to expand it to, to multiple agents. So you, you've got an idea there, right? So it's just kind of a vague idea of let's. We have an existing model. We'd like to expand it by adding multiple agents. How did the project develop from that point where you just had that initial idea to the point where the paper, the initial manuscript got submitted? You know, it, um, it developed really fast. So this is all in this period after Ming joins WashU's PhD program. Dan discovers she's brilliant and says, hey, and I'll point out Ming, like I, 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 we're both from Winnipeg at one point. So I, I think this is clearly the main determining factor. Um, uh, or, or let me rephrase, we both escaped from Winnipeg and this <laughs> okay. is the main determining factor. Um, There's something in the water there. There, there is this, this, this project though developed really, really fast at that point, in part because we had the single agent model well codified, well understood. We understood not only it in a computational sense, but mechanistically how it functioned underneath, what drove the results. And as, we're, as Ming was asking the question, well, how can we leverage this model to answer additional questions? Uh, going from one agent to two agents was, was, was just a natural progression because that's what 
most entrepreneurial uh, firms look like. And, and so by, at, 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 that, at that point, things started to move uh, really fast. And it was when we connected it, I think, to Son Stiglitz. Mm-hmm. You know, Dan had a long-term interest in Son Stiglitz. I have another org science paper building on Son Stiglitz. When we connected it to Son Stiglitz, all of a sudden we had um, the, theory, the simple theoretical grounding and the vocabulary to talk about it. And then things moved really, really fast, actually. Uh, because we, ha- I, I, and I, I attribute it to the fact that we had this clear framing for the contribution of the paper. We knew what it would, what we wanted it to be, and you know, uh, uh, so often in papers that you see, it's hard to figure out what the contribution is, or you don't know it until the end, and that makes the process hard. For us, I think we had that idea quite early, and that made the process much easier. Right. So Ming, you correct me if I'm wrong about this, but you joined the project kind of after the first paper was written, right? So how was that experience for you joining an existing team? Right. Um, So this kind of ties into um, kind of the challenges that we faced on the project, but this would be particular to me, challenges that I faced kind of jumping onto this project that, that was you know, already in development. The first part of the trilogy was already done. And now I'm kind of coming in at this you know, second part of the trilogy. Um, so for me, really a huge challenge was getting initiated in this um, you know, computational modeling challenge. Um, and so you know, John had developed this really beautiful code around the Ryan Elipman model um, that was used in the OrgSci paper. Uh, and when I was, you know, joining onto this project, one of the first things that I had to do was to get really comfortable with the code. Um, if I didn't know what the code was doing, there was no way that, you know, we can even uh, start expanding onto, you know, more than one agent, developing uh, decision-making structures, producing figures to look at, you know, none of that is possible until kind of, you know, I, I, I became comfortable with the code. So exactly. I, I still remember the day when I received and opened up the MATLAB files for the first time, um, you know, in, in our shared, brand new shared Dropbox folder and feeling just completely overwhelmed <laughs> um, by the number of different files, you know, all these different moving pieces. You know, I was trying to understand, you know, how each of these pieces fit together to make the model work. Um, and so I, I, I spent the entire first winter break as a PhD student, just just exploring this code. Um, and, you know, only after that, I, that, that process did I, you know, really make my first line um, of code edit um, to, to, you know, John's existing uh, beautiful code. Um, and, you know, John was incredibly helpful in this process. I remember, you know, Skyping him several times, you know, when we still used Skype instead of Zoom, um, <laughs> you know, several times when we, you know, when I had these questions that were, you know, just too complicated to resolve through email. Um, and, you know, John, you know, being a senior modeler, um, you know, what was there kind of for me to, you know, apprentice under and, and to learn from. Um, so mm-hmm. you know, thank you, John. <laughs> um, I, I, I had some other significant, you know, challenges um, that came later on, um, but, but maybe, you know, Rich, you have uh, some other uh, questions uh, that, that you'd like to ask the team before that. Well, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, that's great. Um, so uh, aside from 
you know, adjusting the code, uh, what were the what were, what other big challenges did you face in in course of doing this project? Well, I think uh, I'd like to hear from Hart and Dan as well. And this is, a, I think, a, an interesting question. But um, one of the, I guess you call it a challenge. You could also call it a, a kind of a nod to being um, sort of uh, having foresight on the project was was early on when we were uh, developing the model. We, we were particularly careful with uh, putting it together and um, you know, shaking it out, make sure it was work, uh, working work correctly. Uh, benchmarking against the Ryan and Littman paper, the theoretical model paper from which we built this model um, and the details of how the biases were implemented, all of that stuff. And I think, at least for me, um, and I, I think I can speak for, for the rest of, of the guys, um, there was this sort of uh, spider sense that, that this was a good foundational model that we could build on in future papers. And so I, I guess this is, a, I think, an advice I would give to others who are pursuing this, this type of thing is to devote a lot of attention upfront when you're originally con uh, conceiving of the model for that first paper, because I think it's often the case that that will not be the only paper that you'll do from that model. Right. Anybody else want to chime in on that question? You know, I, 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 I'll chime in a little bit. You know, I think the, um, one of the things that's centrally important in using models to develop theory formal models, but computational models, analytical models, and you know this very well, is, is, is if you don't have a deep understanding of how the model functions, uh, A, you'll make a lot of mistakes, and B, you won't see the potential of the model. And, you know, uh, uh, that depth of understanding uh, is centrally important and uh, I think we had a um, good process of working together to pull out the understanding of the model, to, to be forthcoming with each other when, when, when uh, you know, I said something about a result and Dan says, you know, I don't, get, I don't see how you see that from the results we have, show me the evidence in the, in the model or in an output of the model. And I think, you know, that, that honest back and forth, uh, pushing ourselves to understand it is really important because one of the things I found out in, you know, a couple of decades of doing this now is that even the simplest models are remarkably hard to understand. People, a bandit model, the Ryan Lippmann model is just basically a, a, simple ba a simplified bandit model. People have been studying bandit models for about 90 years now. Mm -hmm. You could write the basic thing in, two, in 10 lines or 12 lines of code. You can write the basics of the model. We're studying it for 90 years. You know, so so I, you know, it, it's easy to draw the wrong conclusions from a, a, a relatively sophisticated model, and right. if you recognize how hard it is from a trivially simple model to draw, to learn, uh, 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 maybe you one is uh, more humble about the model. Indeed, indeed, yes. So let's talk a little bit about the the uh, the review process at AMR for this paper. So how did the paper change? from the first initial submission to the final version that got accepted. So 
So I'll take the first version and maybe I'll give the, the first part and take give John or Ming the second part. I the first part, you know, we had this very clear framing of the contribution right up front. Um, and you know, that didn't change that much. There were shifts and here and there and bits and pieces, but that core, that core framing of the contribution persists throughout the round, uh, uh, the two round, uh, the, the two submissions that we did. There was, was there one round of revision or two rounds of revision? Can't remember now. Really, really just one. Just one round of revision. Wow. So, so that part, that part stayed the same, but between the first, you know, in doing the work for that R for that R and R, um, a lot of the changes happened in the back end of the paper in, with the model. So maybe I'll pass it over to uh, to John or to Ming here to talk a little bit about that. Um, Ming, do you want to field it, or you want me to? Either way. Um. Uh. uh sure. I'll I'll chime in kind of quickly. Um. So. So one of the things that we did between um, you know, our first draft and the revision is um, we, we improved significantly on our figures. Um, so you know, if you read the paper, you know that this is a model with a ton of moving parts. Yes. Um, and <laughs> so <laughs> um, you know, between revisions, we really thought more carefully about how we wanted to clearly communicate our results. Um, so, you know, this is kind of just a personal view of mine chiming in, um, but, it, you know, I, I really believe that, you know, having just an awesome model is, is, is quite pointless if nobody understands what you're trying to do with it, right? right. Um, but, you know, at the same time, the complexity of the model is also its inherent strength, right? Because reality is really complex and we're just trying our best to model it. So, you know, we don't want to take away complexity uh, from the model. Um, but at the same time, it's really important to us to work around this complexity um, when we, we thought about developing um, the figures. We really wanted to clearly communicate our results to the audience. So, so that was kind of, um, you know, one of the things that really drove us to revise our figures, make it even more clear um, to communicate our, our, our uh, results to the audience. And, um, you know, for me personally, uh, you know, crafting these figures was uh, was quite important because um, I had the opportunity to present this paper uh, three different times at three different conferences, and each time I had about ten to twelve minutes to right. kind of tell the whole story. <laughs> um, and so, part of what really helped me uh, get um, you know the story across were uh, these figures. And I um, I, I, I realized uh, the first time that I presented it, um, the figures were too complex. <laughs> and so, you know, making them um, simple, but also, um, you know, keeping the comprehensiveness of the model uh, within our figure was uh, something that we strive to do between our revisions. And I did see one of those presentations at the Strategy Science Conference a couple of years ago in Salt Lake City. And I did think you did a terrific job on it, so. Thanks, Rich. Uh, good, good use of the of the uh, the graphics. Absolutely. And as I remember the revision process, the gap the gap that we had to cross was one, um, making the results more apparent and more impactful. And then back to Hart's question about what the mechanisms were, we had to do that more efficiently, more effectively. And John and Ming both developed graphical approaches to those to to bridging those gaps that was a huge component and, and having this not last 10, <laughs> 10 rounds 
um, but uh, it required a significant innovation in, in how we wanted to show what the model was doing and, and why it, there were a couple of counterintuitive pieces, which, which John found a, a delightful way to illustrate. And I, I will have to say that it's, it's not just for the, uh, the uh, reading audience, a part of it is for us so, so that we can confirm uh, some of the uh, ideas that we have are really you know, correct. Yeah, by the way, so I was, as we've been talking, I've been thinking that if you wanted to add a fourth paper to this series, you could, uh, you could do a comparison of these first two papers to look at the marginal impact of adding a second person to the venture. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe think about it from the perspective of what would be the optimal, you know, choice of, of partner to add uh, when you when when a solo entrepreneur wants to wants to bring on somebody else, what would be kind of the optimal characteristics to look for in that person? Anyway, just a thought for you. Um, so I think my my last question is um, uh, it is uh, perhaps my most complicated question because there's really five parts to it. So the question is a question about impact and what impact you hope this paper will have. Uh, and I'm thinking about, like I say, five different areas that the paper could have impact. It could have impact on future theory, on future empirical research. It could have impact on future practice, on future pedagogy, and perhaps even on future policy. So taking into, take into account all five of those uh, possible future impacts, what, what, what impact do you hope that this paper will have? Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a really good question and a tough question to answer. I think um, you know, we, we certainly hope that this particular paper will have an impact on its own and will impact the way entrepreneurship scholars think about teams, team formation, and the fact that the structure of ownership and decision-making matters in teams. So, so we do think that, that scholars of teams and entrepreneurship will, will hopefully benefit from and draw upon this paper for some inspiration uh, and maybe theory testing going forward. Um, I think we've already talked about how, how we do see this as, you know, uh, the second part of a three-part trilogy. Um, and, um, you know, it, 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 this is our empire strikes back in that, in that analogy. Um, uh, in, in the end, I think the contribution of the work in some sense will lie in the, the collection of the three computational modeling papers that we've written. And the, the third paper, our, our Return of the Jedi, if you will, um, it's been written, it's been submitted. I don't want to give away too much, but the question it focuses on is how early and how frequently should an entrepreneur pivot and how much should this be as a function of his or her bias? And that, that paper is an R&R &R a well-respected journal. We hope that we can revise it, meet the editor and referee's expectations. Um, part of how we want this, um, this work to become influential in, in uh, pedagogy and theory development is uh, we are um, planning on writing a technical paper and releasing the code associated mm. with this paper so that people can read it uh, and adapt it to questions like the one you just generated, Rich. Um, you know, once, you, once you see the central architecture of, the decision, of how beliefs evolve and how decisions are, are made, um, we'd like other people to experiment with it uh, to add different flavors of bias to go from n equals two to n equals ten, add different pieces, um, uh, and, and this is this is an area where we where we, we hope that others will 
will be willing to make the investment that Ming made uh, to get up to speed on understanding how the code works. We'd like to give them a few tools to do that, but uh, then thinking creative ways how to, about how to ask, um, answer new questions with, with this infrastructure. Um, so when it comes to policy, um, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> I know that's, it, that piece is always a bit of a stretch it, for some papers, but I uh, ask it anyway. I think it, it so this this line of work has has changed how I think about entrepreneurship. I think about sort of teaching in this space, um, um, but mostly because it, it's it's given me a, a framework, a set of buckets to 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 decompose the process into, and to help people recognize that you've got beliefs, you've got actions, the the beliefs evolve through a, whatever process you've got in place, the actions depend on the incentives that you set up with for either yourself or your team to, uh, to, to make things happen. And, and, then, and then you've got bias on top of that you've got to be aware of um, when you're kind of entering into this, this process. And, and then since, then since this, this whole thing was started with a, a discussion, this, this, this Ryan Lippman model is a model about termination, mm -hmm. and to give up. Right, as opposed um, to when to enter, right. As opposed to why to pursue. I mean, so, so, you know, the common wisdom is all about entrepreneurial success comes from persistence. Um, but when you kind of dig into this process quite clearly, a lot of the distinctions between the winners and losers are um, not staying with bad projects uh, and uh, um, also getting the good ones off the ground, which doesn't always happen. And so right. understanding these different categories of where entrepreneurial processes can go awry, I think can be helpful for pedagogy and, and practice, uh, but needs some further, further development. I, I, I chime in with one other thing and maybe, you know, I think in any project, all, all of the co-authors bring slightly different motivations. Uh, for me, you know, I, I mentioned I was an entrepreneur for a dozen years before going back to grad school. And I was surprised that research and entrepreneurship, certainly the stuff through the 2000, but even subsequently, had very little to do with the world I knew. It was a world of learning. It was a world of, of informational problems, drawing inferences. And, and it is not just a world of static decision-making. It's a process of accumulating knowledge and making go, no-go decisions. And I guess in this series of work, in this trilogy with, with these folks, and in other work, I keep on pushing the centrality of this learning process. And so I, I hope we can start across these papers to reframe entrepreneurship as there are risk takers, not risk takers. There are, are this type, that type. There are capable or incapable, but, but rather um, think about the process of learning. Mm -hmm. and, and I think um, the literature is slowly going in that way. And I hope we're continuing to nudge it in that way. I like that framing. That's great. That's great. Now, I, I, you know, I, I perhaps did push the question a little bit too far in terms of policy and I, I guess you know policy doesn't necessarily have to mean public policy right so for example if I'm a if I'm a venture capitalist who's dealing with a portfolio of investments and ventures 
in some sense, I'm functioning as a policymaker for that portfolio of companies, right? So looked at from that perspective, is there, is there a policy prescription for the venture capitalist? In, in this well, case? I think there's a policy prescription for the venture capitalist and for others, right? I, I Ming mentioned this earlier, the standard policy for dealing with biased entrepreneurs mm-hmm. is to A, screen them out, or B, fix them. Right. Uh, uh, and this is true whether this is the SBA and S- <clears throat> excuse me, educational programs or investment programs or venture capitalists. Right. But the policy implication we have is no design for them. Mm-hmm. We don't have to kick hard out. We might want to. <laughs> we can design a structure that leverages the best of heart. Uh, 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 in a way that is advantageous right. to the collective. I, we don't me, want to lose the skills just because he's relentlessly over-optimistic, right? We want I to... think of him as too good looking, but yes. Well, okay. there is that too. Yeah, I can't, can't blame you. Good. Well, I am, I am out of questions and I thank you all for, for sitting for the interview. I really appreciate it. Uh, I think the audience has learned uh, a lot if they're paying attention to, uh, to this, uh, this discussion. Uh, they've learned a lot about uh, the process of theorizing uh, and the process of working together as a team on that theorizing project. Thanks for having us, Rich. It was great to see you again. Likewise, likewise, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, good. Okay, well, I'll work on editing this and getting it up on YouTube in a couple of days. Awesome, thanks. I'll, I'll put, put all the embarrassing stuff right at the beginning. <laughs> That'll be nothing embarrasses me. So you can do everything you want with me. You know, that's, that's what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, as an aside, Rich, I, I, don't, I don't want us to take the uh, Star Wars trilogy too closely as an analogy, because the popular wisdom is that the Empire Strikes Back is by far the best one. Ah, uh, yes, yes, right. <laughs> well, well, and that, that would also be the second one, right? Yes. That's this one. Well, That's this for thing. AMR. Yeah. Well, that, that oh, was, I think you're, you're, you're thinking about the sequential nature of the evaluation and selection process. There you go. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, would yeah, mean yeah. That, that Ming is either Boba Fett or, um, or Lando Calrissian, right? I think because would Ming like that. She's from Winnipeg. Because, <laughs> well, that's the character that joined in this. Those are the two characters that joined in the second episode, right? So you could be, you could do a lot worse than being Billy D. Williams. Yes. Well, I'm the Darth Vader, so. It's, um... <laughs> <laughs> so, so, John, should we go to a, like a, a Lord of the Rings? Uh, there you go. Instead? There you no, go. no, terrible. Can't stand Lord of the Rings. Well, Can't that would leave it. you as the Hobbit. <laughs> 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 that's got to go in the, in the <laughs> okay okay good a bit, it's been a pleasure talking with y'all and uh uh i hope we can get a lot of views for this on youtube all right thanks Take care, rich.